listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. I think I can speak for Pastor Phil as well as for myself when uh, just to say what a joy and incredible privilege it is that Sunday after Sunday you come and you listen to us. I don't know that I would listen to me, but you guys come. It's just an incredible gift. And we know that there's a trust that's implicit in that, that what you are hearing from us is not our thoughts or our insights necessarily, but it's the Word of God. And this morning, it, I was thinking about this. Do you know what the subject of this morning's sermon is? It's Jesus. And when you have that as your subject, as long as you stay faithful to the Word, it's hard to go wrong, right? There's truly no one like Jesus. And to help us understand Jesus a little bit better this morning, uh, we, are, we turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 7. If you would go ahead and take your Bibles, however you access God's Word, and turn there, swipe there, open the app, whatever is involved. And we'll be reading the first 13 verses of the 7th chapter of John in in a few moments. I will say this. Understanding the Gospel of John is largely predicated on seeing the connection between Jesus and the Old Testament. It's vital that we understand the connection between Jesus and the Old Testament and Jesus and the Old Covenant because it just works its way throughout the Gospel of John. Again and again, again and again, we are to understand that that Jesus and Christianity is not something that's completely new on the scene. But rather, Jesus is the rightful extension and the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. In other words, Jesus is the point and the purpose of what was written in the Old Testament and what is commanded in the Old Covenant. It all finds its fruition. It all comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so as we've been working through this, we've been trying to to point that out and make sure that we're aware of that. And just so that we get this, this sense of what's going on here, I want to just give you some examples that we've already covered so far in the Gospel of John. In the first chapter alone, there are three different inferences that we are to make about what was going on in Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus was doing and what had happened in the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant. The first time we we encounter this really is when we are told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word for tabernacle. And it's meant to conjure up, it's meant to bring up images of, of what was happening when the people of God were journeying from Egypt toward the land that God had promised them. And that in the middle, when they would camp at night, they were to put the tabernacle, which was where God met with His people, they were to put that tabernacle in the middle of the camp. And so when we hear that Jesus tabernacled, that the word tabernacled with us, we're to understand, again, that is where God is meeting with His people. 
In the, in the first chapter, we see how Jesus was called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was identifying Jesus with the Paschal Lamb that would be sacrificed at Passover. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a few moments. At the end of chapter 1, Jesus said, You will see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This was referring back to Genesis 28, where Jacob dreamed of a ladder between heaven and earth with angels ascending and descending on it. In John chapter 3, Jesus identifies with what happened in the wilderness when the people were bitten by the serpents, by the poisonous serpents that were sent among them in judgment. And we, 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 we are to remember that the Lord instructed Moses to craft a bronze servant, to lift it up on a pole, and to march it through the camp. And the promise was, everyone was told, whoever looks on that serpent will be saved. So when we hear Jesus say that even as the serpent was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, we make this connection. When Jesus fed the 5,000, we're meant to, to, to see in that Jesus providing for His people the manna in the wilderness. And Jesus even calls Himself the bread of life from heaven. Jesus walking on the water in chapter 3, pointing back to, to the, deliverance of God, the deliverance that God brought for His people, delivering them through the Red Sea. These things speak of the continuity of Scripture, and it provides for us the ultimate and full and final narrative for our existence. And here's that narrative, that though the Bible was written by many different divinely inspired authors over many different centuries, and though the Bible is made up of many different books with many chapters and many verses, it's just telling one story. It's telling the story of God creating, of man rebelling, of Christ redeeming, and ultimately, finally, God restoring. That's just the big picture. That's the narrative, if you want to call it a meta-narrative, if you want to call it whatever. That's the big picture that we all are part of that narrative, of what God is doing. And the Bible is telling us that. And when we understand that Jesus is in the Old Testament as much as He's in the New Testament, then we begin to see a continuity and it helps us to see the bigger picture. That Christ's coming wasn't plan B. It was always God's intention. It was part of God's narrative from the very beginning. So when we come to chapter 7... We see these connections between the Old Testament and Jesus, they continue. Actually, if we understand correctly, there's, there's a six-month difference between where the end of chapter 6 leaves off and where chapter 7 begins. There's a six-month difference there in the storyline. But we are brought into the time of the year when there was what was called, the Jews were celebrating something called the Feast of Booths. Or the Feast of Tabernacles, it's sometimes referred to. If you remember your Old Testament history, in Deuteronomy 16, the Lord gave to His people three festivals or holidays, or feasts if you want to call them, to keep. And this was to be done each year. Deuteronomy 16, 16 says, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that He will choose at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. John chapter 7, 
begins with that last feast, the Feast of Booth. That's what's going on. That's the time period. And this feast is going to provide the context for everything that we read in chapter 7. Really, it, it, it extends into chapter 8. Really understanding the Feast of Booth, as we think about this as Christians from our perspective, we would think that, that really the, the Feast of, Pasto, of Passover would be the big feast that, that, that everybody would be excited about celebrating the deliverance of God from Egyptian captivity. But really in, in the history of the nation of Israel, it was the Feast of Booths that was the most anticipated and celebrated. The Feast of the Booths marked the successful completion of, the, of, of their labors and bringing in the harvest. And so basically all the produce was in the barns and all the people could relax and enjoy and rejoice. It says this in Deuteronomy 16. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that your God will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will all together be joyful." So this is, I'm just trying to give a little bit of context here of what's happening as we begin chapter 7. In many ways, the Feast of Booth would be like our Thanksgiving, but, but without cornbread dressing. And so it was, a big, it was a big thing that they looked forward to. Matter of fact, if you were to go on YouTube and Google, that, Google Feast of Booths, they still follow that today. And it's really interesting to see the modern expressions of this. As part of this feast, Everyone was required to actually live outside for a week. You were instructed to build a hut or shelter or a booth, if you want to call it that. You see, the part of the feast wasn't just the celebration of the harvest being, uh, being completed. The feast was also to remind the people of God the many years of God's provision and care for them as they wandered in the wilderness living in temporary shelters. So that was what was going on. People were building these, these structures, and they still do that today. It's, it's a really fascinating thing to see. So this was the time which we begin, which John chapter 7 begins. So let me read verses 1 through 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. 
While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, again, we turn our hearts to your word. Father, we know that you speak words of life, and so we are listening. Lord, help our hearts to receive with faith and humility the truth. Lord, work that in each person who is here. We ask this in Jesus, your name. Amen. There are four observations that I want to make from this passage concerning Jesus. The first is this. Jesus isn't interested in short-term popularity. He stays on mission. He isn't interested in short-term popularity. He stays on mission. This chapter tells us Jesus was staying put in Galilee. When everybody else was going to Jerusalem, which is where you normally went for the celebration of these feasts, Jesus said he was staying in Galilee. He said that because he knew that there were a that Jews were plotting to kill him. And by Jews, he's actually referring to the religious leaders in his days. They were trying to kill him. And if he went to Jerusalem openly, publicly, he knew that that would bring most likely, uh, somehow or another, that would put him in harm's way. So we are given in this, this passage, we are given an encounter that Jesus had with his brothers. And his brothers were pressuring him to go to Jerusalem. And if we read this correctly, how the context and and what Jesus says about what they're saying, they were essentially taunting him. Basically saying, Jesus, it's time to put up or shut up. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea. That your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Basically, they are saying to Jesus, If you are the Messiah, you need to be where lots of people are. Where lots of people can see you. And this week, being the week, the fe- week of the, the Feast of Booths, you should be in Jerusalem, not in Galilee. Their advice was that he should basically show himself openly to the world so that his popularity could rise and he could gain followers and be important. And Jesus rejects their suggestion. Jesus knew that they wanted him, essentially they were kind of you know, prodding him, poking him to see if he would really go after it, to seize control, that he would gain power, that he would grab glory for himself now. They wanted him to do something Sensational. Jesus, his, Jesus' brothers, their advice was worldly in origin, it was worldly in motive, and it was worldly in design. And Jesus saw that and knew that. It was contrary to why God the Father had sent him. They wanted him to promote himself and make a splash to get noticed. In in some ways, this is like what was happening with the crowds in John chapter 6. Remember, they were following Jesus, not because He was the Son of God, not because they recognized He was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. They recognized that He could meet their physical needs. They wanted someone who would just be there to, to meet their material needs. And not only is this like the crowd in, in John chapter 6, this is also their advice to Jesus also reeks of Satan's temptation to Jesus when Jesus was in the wilderness. 
Satan tempted Jesus to use his divine power for self-serving ends. Jesus rejected the crowds in John 6. He rejected Satan in Matthew 4. And now he rejects his brothers. Why? Because Jesus sought eternal glory, not temporary popularity. The vice The advice of Jesus' brothers sound more like marketing principles coming out of Madison Avenue than they are about the ways of God and what God was about. So, in the face of his brother's advice, Jesus does not waver from his mission. He stays on mission. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is already here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not fully come. My time has not yet fully come. He is saying that because he knows what his mission is about. And he knows that what his brothers are advising him will not fulfill that mission. I think this reminds us of another instance earlier in the Gospel of John when Jesus said something similar to His mother Mary at the wedding feast in Cana in John 2. Mary advised Jesus to display His power publicly. Jesus told her, My hour has not yet come. What did Jesus mean? What is He saying in these instances? We know Jesus' whole life followed a pattern of timing that was set by God's eternal decree, that was set by God's eternal plan. We know that that was governing what was happening in his life. Galatians 4.4 says of Jesus' birth, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His His Son. The same thing could be said of every event in the life of Jesus. It was all according to plan. So what did Jesus mean by His time had not yet fully come? Jesus is indicating that there is a proper time coming that would be in accordance with His purpose of coming to earth. Going to Jerusalem at that feast, at that time, to display Himself would not be in line with what He knew His Heavenly Father had for Him. Certainly we we are to see the connection to Christ in all these feasts. And what we eventually know is that when Jesus ultimately goes to Jerusalem, it will be at the feast, it will be Passover will be happening during that week. And he wants to be identified with that feast, what's going on in that week. But it's not time. His brothers wanted him to manifest himself in what was the glory of the feast of booths. But Jesus knew that before the glory And the celebration that was represented in the Feast of Booths, there needed to be the suffering that was coming through the Passover. In other words, when Jesus does go to Jerusalem, knowing He was going to die, it would be at that that time. And at the time, during the the observance of Passover, where people were actually slaughtering the, the unspotted lamb, Jesus would be dying on a cross. He had His timing. He knew what was coming. He knew when he needed to be there. So yes, he was being tempted by his brothers to seek glory. 
Jesus knew that that glory was in his future, but there was something that had to come first. There was suffering that had to come first. His brothers essentially were pressuring him to take the crown without taking the cross. But Jesus didn't give in. He stayed on task. Jesus was not deterred from his mission of coming to seek and save the lost by giving his life as a ransom for many. Glory, again, was certainly in His future, but first must come the cross. And how grateful we are that Jesus did not give in to that advice. That Jesus stayed on mission. That He did not give in to that temptation. Listen, without the cross, we would all still be dead in our trespasses and sin. And you can see in so many instances how, how the evil one in the world were just trying to disrupt and to deter Jesus from what he, he was called to. You know, there's, there's something that's called mission creep or mission, mission drift. Um, this is something that can happen in organizations and businesses. It can happen in the military and governments. And it can certainly happen in churches. Mission creep or mission drift is the gradual or incremental expansion or shift of the mission beyond the original scope and focus and goals. Mission creep or mission drift happens when leaders lose focus and allow an organization to move away from its intended purpose. And that's essentially what this, this wasn't some huge overt temptation to pull Jesus away. It was just this subtle thing to kind of get his attention off why he really came to put it on this thing over here. He was being tempted with mission creep to seemingly change the very mission itself. You know, the church, I think, today has to resist this temptation. We have to resist the temptation that that comes from the pressures of our culture that tempt us away from our mission. They, They want us to change it. They want us to redirect it. They want us to shrink it. They want us, or even worse, to ignore it or to outright abandon it. Well, what is that mission? It is the mission that Jesus gave to the church. It is that we carry on His mission that was started in His sacrifice. To make disciples that are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And to teach them to observe, to teach them to obey all things that Christ has commanded us. That is the mission of the church. May the Spirit of Christ that dwells in us keep us on mission. If we give place to mission creep or to mission drift of any kind, we not only lose our identity, we ultimately lose our power. This is a temptation for the church. Certainly, it's a temptation for the church. And we've seen this a lot recently. To to be more about social change and impacting our world. Does the church have a responsibility to speak to social issues and concerns? Absolutely. Does the church have instruction to care for the poor? To those who are in need and to stand with the oppressed? Yes, yes, yes. Without, Without question. God's people have a responsibility to help those in need. God's people have a responsibility to relieve suffering where we can. We do this because we are disciples of Christ. We do this because it is the heart of the Father. But we must keep the priorities clear in the church. The clear mandate must not be obscured or obviated. 
The power of the Spirit is to be a witness to Christ so that disciples are made. It is not to bring change to our world. It is to see God bring change to the human heart. We must not let mission creep happen. We are feeling the pressure now both within the church and outside the church. Within the church, there are those who have decided that we are no longer in the church age of grace, but we're now in the kingdom age of dominion. I see this all the time. It's on church billboards as I go down 1604. Where we must take power. And so often that taking of power is done in means and methods that are just not Christ-like. Outside the church, there is pressure to shame and silence us from proclaiming that Jesus is the way, is the truth, and He is the life. I think, I think we're, 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 we're aware enough to know how the, those claims hit the modern ear. We get that this is offensive to claim one way, one truth, one life, and one man. We get that the culture around us will try to redefine labels and, and turn love into hate and truth into lies and wrong into right and darkness into light. So family, don't be surprised. Don't let your faith be shaken from such developments. We must humbly, with faith and courage, not give way to those pressures. To come off of, of mission to somehow be swerved away from what it is that Christ has given to the church. We must humbly with faith and courage go forward. And listen, family, we must be ready to suffer the consequences for staying on mission. Second observation from this passage. Jesus' brothers inexplicably do not believe in Him. That's baffling to me. Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Think about this. How is this possible? How could people who have lived with him, who've watched him, who've listened to him, who were related to him, not believe in him? Does this not speak to the degree of depravity in the human heart? And of a person's inability to come to Christ on their own? Jesus, being fully human, had to be impacted by this to some degree. Outside of his mother, we don't know of any other family member who actually believed in him, at least at this point. Think about what that means for us. For those of us who have unbelieving family members, whether it's a parent, maybe a child, or a brother, or a sister, I think this should bring some amount of comfort to us. We so easily blame ourselves. We so often unwisely carry on our shoulders the responsibility for the salvation of our family members. This is certainly often the case for Christian parents with unbelieving children. In the third epistle of John, he writes this, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. I think every, every Christ-following parent can relate to that. Yes, that's what we want. This is our hope. This is our joy to share in Christ together with our children. But here's the problem and the issue. We don't determine whether a child or any family member walks in the truth. We don't control that. 
We certainly have responsibilities as parents in how we raise our children. God-given responsibilities. He tells us what we are supposed to do. And those are a means of grace. Absolutely. We have responsibilities as children to our parents. How we relate to them and respond to them. How we relate to siblings. How we relate to, to our cousins, whoever it may be. But the truth is, we save no one. Only Christ can do that. And so often we feel if we can just do these things right, surely they will have to believe. And when they don't, with that comes this incredible guilt and shame as we blame ourselves because people in our family remain unsaved. I think there is comfort for us in this verse. Can you imagine a better scenario for believing in Jesus than growing up with Him? And they still didn't believe. J.C. Ryle wrote this about this. In our Lord Jesus Christ, there was no fault either in temper, word, or deed. Yet even Christ's own brethren did not believe in Him. Seeing Christ's miracles, hearing Christ's teachings, Living in Christ's own company were not enough to make men believers. The mere possession of spiritual privileges never yet made anyone a Christian. We can and must carry a burden for the salvation of those in our family. That burden can be heavy, but it is a burden that finds rest in Christ. It's one of the burdens He helps us carry. We must never carry the weight of a person's salvation as if their salvation depends upon me. It depends upon Christ. Again, God uses us as means of grace, but Christ must bring life to the spiritually dead. We cannot do that. They can't do it for themselves either. We can't do that for anyone. We must be faithful to do what the Lord has called us to do and to trust that He is good and that today is the day of salvation. Third observation. Jesus and hate do have a connection. I hear this so much. That Jesus had nothing to do with hate. Verse 6. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that my work, that, that its works are evil. That, that's a pretty stunning verse. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me. And it hates me because I am telling the world that its works are evil. Now, I mean... We can kind of relate to this to some degree. No one enjoys being corrected, right? That, that, that's a difficult... Someone come along and correcting us where we're off. Uh, how about someone saying that what you do is evil? That would be hard to hear. Jesus is saying, the world hates me because I say that everything that gives meaning and purpose to the world is actually meaningless and purposeless. The actions that feel so good that fill the lives of so many people are actually contrary to what is right and what is true and what is good. And no one likes to be told that. No one likes to have that demonstrated to them. 
The world that has no room for truth has no tolerance for judgments from truth. We are told that people wanted to kill Jesus. And Jesus knew that they were plotting to take his life. They were doing this because Jesus was exposing them. He was exposing the hypocrisy. He was exposing the ignorance. He was exposing the pride and willfulness. He was exposing their spiritual blindness, especially to those who were supposed to be leading the people to God. And instead of hearing that and repenting, they went the other direction. William Barclay once wrote this, When a man's ideals clash with those of Christ, he either must submit or he must seek to destroy him. That's usually the direction it goes. And so people hate Jesus. Hatred is connected to Jesus. And because we follow Jesus, it will be directed at us. Listen, the gospel is not good news to those who love darkness rather than light. It's a provocation. It's an insult. It's an offense. The word for hate here is really intense. It means detest. We're talking about beyond a strong dislike. We're talking about revulsion, contempt, antipathy. It means that the world is disgusted by Jesus. But what is startling, even more so, about this is Jesus' statement to his brothers, the world cannot hate you. Why could it not hate them? Well, basically because they were part of it. They were part of the problem. They had aligned with those who hate Jesus. That is why they suggested he go to Jerusalem and promote himself. There are some commentators who even feel that they knew of the plot to kill Jesus and they were spurning him on to expose himself to that danger. We don't know for sure their motivation, but we know it wasn't in line with the Lord. And their actions actually identify them with the world that hates Jesus. But here's the thought as I was reading at this. Can the world hate me? Does the world hate me? Does it detest me? Is it revulsed by me? Does the world feel contempt for us? Is it it disgusted with me? Well, let's be clear about this. We are not to value being hated by the world. But nor are we to be surprised when it comes. We can be grateful when we can remain faithful to Christ and still have positive relationship with unbelievers. But God's word is clear. If the world hated Jesus, it will hate the followers of Jesus. John 15, we'll read this a little bit later. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 6. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus was preparing His disciples. He's preparing us as His disciples. But please hear this. The message here is not that we should revel in people's hatred of us, wherever we may encounter. When He says that you are to rejoice on that day and leap for joy, it's not that people hate you. It's that you know that you have been identified with Christ and there is a redemption coming to that evil and there is a 
a reward that's following. That's what we're excited about. Not that people hate us, but that we know that God is redeeming their hatred of us for our good. So the message here is to be prepared. We live our lives so Christ will be exalted and God will be glorified. We live our lives in this way because this is where abundant life is. This is eternal life. But when we are faithful to to follow Jesus, it will also bring derision, even disgust from others. So we must prepare for that. We must be honest about that and what that means. And in the face of hatred, what is to be our response? Luke chapter 6, Jesus helps us here. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Last week we talked about the hard sayings of Jesus. This is hard, isn't it? What we have too often seen from Christians has been just the opposite of this. We hate our enemies instead of doing what Jesus said to love our enemies. We seek to do bad to those who are against us instead of seeking to do good. We curse them, not bless those who abuse us. If someone strikes us, we return blow for blow. If someone takes from us, we fight to keep it. And it seems that too often, we do not treat others as we want to be treated. We treat others how they treat us. This is contrary to Jesus Christ. This is contrary to what He's teaching us. That when the world hates us, we can be confident God's going to redeem it and reward that hatred for our good. But He also tells us how we are to respond to hatred in this world. If the world hates us, let it be be because we are following Christ as Christ said to be followed. Not because we are responding in kind to those who hate us or disagree with us or oppose us or even persecute us. If someone stumbles, let it be on the offense of the cross and the offense of the gospel, not because of our arrogance or hubris. And this brings us to the last observation from this text. Jesus often divides people. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. 
Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. People were confused about Jesus. They were unsure about who Jesus was. They were unsure about what he was doing and whether it was good. Now this issue is going to come up again in verse 25 and then again in verse 40. So I'm not going to do a a real deep dive this morning. But we do need to know that people are always trying to make sense of Jesus. The problem is they project on Jesus their own ideas and their own values instead of understanding who Jesus actually is as revealed in the Word of God. And that's really the only way you're going to know who Jesus is and what He's like is through the Word of God. There exists even today so much confusion about Him. The range of what people think and feel about Jesus is just, it's vast. Some say He was a good man, kind of like what, what, what their passage says. He was a good man who went around and did some good things. Some, some believe that he was simply a man who was an inspired leader. Some think he was a helpful teacher. Some think he was just a radical to call, call into question those who were in power in his day. And all those things were part of who Jesus was and, and he did those things. But what we're seeing now, some people actually question whether he existed. And there are others who are so uncomfortable with how the Bible presents Jesus that they actually edit the gospel accounts. If Scripture is the only way to find out who Jesus is, and you don't like the Jesus presented in those pages, then you have to discredit or change what is written. Have you ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? The Jesus Seminar started in 1985. And it started with the goal to figure out the true historical Jesus apart from the fictional Jesus or the spiritual Jesus. These scholars, at one time there was over 200 of them involved in this, they met twice a year to go over every part of the Gospels and then each scholar would vote on whether a certain passage from the Gospel was authentic and could be actually attributed to Jesus. Talk about hubris. Here were their results. Their results were that only 18% of Jesus' sayings in the gospel were actually authentic. And only 16% of Jesus' deeds were authentic. That's stunning. They gutted the scriptures of anything that spoke of his power, of his deity. They removed all miracles and all claims to be God. That was their agenda. That was their presupposition that went into this. So they looked at everything through that lens. If it's miraculous, it can't be true. And they were able to come up with a Jesus that was palatable for their sensibilities. See, the problem is, when you edit out all those things, you come up with the benign uninteresting religious figure who somehow died tragically as an example of love and who isn't really worthy of following anywhere. He's just another good guy who did some good things and taught some good truths. Yet, the testimony of Scripture remains constant and persistent in presenting Jesus as the Son of God who came to give His life as a ransom for many. Just in, in a way of, of ending our time this morning, I, we, we are blessed in this church that we get to be part of, of Sovereign Grace Churches, this family of churches that we're connected to.
And sovereign grace has provided us with this rich and well thought out statement of faith for the, for the churches. And this is how the sovereign grace statement of faith reads. And it helps us capture for us the true and real Jesus. Now, this is not the full statement on Jesus, but it is taken from that statement. Thus, our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, is fully God and fully man, able to be all-sufficient Savior and the only mediator between God and man. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, dying a substitutionary death for the sins of His people. He was buried and arose bodily from the dead on the third day, vindicating His identity and saving, saving work of God, Messiah, and guaranteeing the defeat of death, our future resurrection, and the glorification of our physical bodies. Forty days later, Jesus ascended bodily to heaven, where He is now enthroned at the right hand of God, reigning over all things, and interceding for the, His people as their great high priest. One day, He will return to judge all people and angels, putting all enemies under His feet and dwelling with His people forever. We come back to this Jesus again and again. If you've not read that part of the statement of faith, I encourage you to read it, to read it this week, to meditate on it, to look at the scripture references that are tied to that. It serves our soul. This is where we're centered in Jesus Christ. Don't let your opinion of Jesus and who he is and what he did be anything less than what you just heard and read. Truly, family, there is no one like Jesus. Let's pray.